Good morning. Today's reading is from John chapter 19, verses 14 through 20. Listen to God's word. It was about noon on a preparation day for the Passover. Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, Here's your king. The Jewish leaders cried out, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate responded, What? Do you want me to crucify your king? We have no king except the emperor, the chief priest answered. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus prisoner. Carrying his cross by himself, he went out to a place called Skull Place, in Aramaic, Golgotha. That's where they crucified him and two others with him, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a public notice written and posted on the cross. It read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, after a lot of prayer and discernment, I've decided that the only faithful way to begin our conversation this morning is by telling you my top ten favorite Chuck Norris jokes. So here we go. <clears throat> Chuck Norris wears sunglasses so that his eyes won't hurt the sun. Number nine, Chuck Norris can kill two stones with one bird. Number eight, Chuck Norris has already been to Mars. That's why there are no signs of life. Number seven, Chuck Norris once kicked a horse in the chin. Today, we call them giraffes. Number six, Chuck Norris will never have a heart attack. His heart isn't foolish enough to attack him. Number five, when Chuck Norris swims in the ocean, the sharks stay in steel cages. Number four, when Chuck Norris turned 18, his parents moved out. Number three, if Chuck Norris was a Spartan, the movie 300 would be called One. Number two, Chuck Norris knows Victoria's Secret. And my number one favorite Chuck Norris joke. Chuck Norris was once bitten by a cobra. And after five days of excruciating pain, the cobra died. And you're saying to yourselves, Pastor, why? Right? I mean, we come to church for spiritual edification. You bring Chuck Norris jokes, right? Well, there's a reason. And the reason is because today we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from the perspective of John. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, we see this really interesting perspective of Jesus in the crucifixion. Jesus is the suffering servant. He, we see the human side of Christ. That's not the case in John. In, in John, Jesus is in absolute control. If we were to make a movie of the gospel of John, Chuck Norris would play Jesus. He is a bad man. In the Gospel of John, let me let me show you uh, what I what I mean. So, in Mark chapter fourteen, this is how Mark describes the time Jesus spent in the garden. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. He began to feel in despair. He was anxious. He said to them, "I'm very sad. It's as if I am dying. Stay here. Keep alert." 
Then he went a short distance further. He fell to the ground. He prayed that if possible, he might be spared the time of suffering. This is Mark's account of Jesus in the garden. It is a profoundly human account of the Christ. He's afraid. He's anxious. He wants his friends to stay close. Look at what happens in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. He was in anguish and he prayed all the more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. What I'm about to tell you, I wasn't sure I was going to include in the sermon, but it's so cool that I just have to tell you about it. In 1985, the Journal of the American Medical Association published an article called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. And they took the biblical account and what they knew about historic elements of crucifixion. And they comprised what a physical body would go through in this account. And one of the things that they noted was a a physical condition called hema or hematohydrosis. So what happens in our circulatory system is that uh, blood flows through veins and arteries and vessels. And the smallest of these vessels are called capillaries. And when we experience great anxiety or stress, our blood pressure goes up. We, we, We are... And it doesn't happen because we put more blood into our system. It happens because our arteries and veins and capillaries, they they constrict so that with every pump of the heart, oxygenated blood flows more efficiently through our bodies. Now, the interesting thing about the smallest of the vessels, the capillaries, is that particularly when they serve the subdermis of the skin, these capillaries are so small that in certain ones of them, red blood cells travel through capillaries in a single file line. That's pretty small, yes? Have I already lost you? Because this is really cool. Are you with me? It's really small. And the red blood cells go through in a single file line. So what happens if that, that vessel that's already really, really small, if you're under great anxiety and that vessel begins to constrict even more, well, eventually it will burst. And these capillaries which serve the subdermis of our skin, when they burst, the blood in them flows into our dermis and it goes out through our sweat glands. And it looks like our sweat is blood. Journal of American Medical Association records a number of instances of hemata or hemahydrosis that have occurred. And my point is to tell you that Dr. Luke points out this interesting condition. Mark, Matthew, Luke, they want us to know that Jesus suffered mightily in preparation for the cross and on the cross. Now, with that in mind, let's look at John's account of what happens in the garden. John chapter 18 in verse 3. Judas brought a company of soldiers and some guards from the chief priests and Pharisees. They came there carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now the word company, that fourth word in, company means between 200 and 600 soldiers. I don't know what you've always thought about, but when I have pictured Jesus getting arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, I thought there was like 10 or 12 dudes who came and did it, right? Not the case. John tells us that there's between 200 and 600, that that they sent an army to capture Jesus. I just want you to imagine that. They're, They're walking in the middle of the night. They're carrying torches and swords and spears. And Jesus sees them coming across the valley for him. They're coming for him. And he knows that he is going to suffer mightily at their hands the next day. So what does Jesus do? Let's look in verses 4 and following. Jesus knew everything that was to happen to him, so he went out and asked, who are you looking for? Just wait a minute. 600 dudes carrying torches and swords and spears and shields coming for you. And what does Jesus do? Does he run? No. 
Does he hide? No. Does he tinkle in his tunic? No. Jesus walks out into the midst of these 600 soldiers and he says, What are you looking for? Chuck Norris, right? That's exactly what you'd expect Chuck to do. And the soldiers say, We're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says to them, I am. Now, you remember this from a couple weeks ago? The I am statements of Jesus? This is what the name that God gave to God's own self in Exodus chapter 3. What we find here is the living God speaking his own name. And when Jesus says, I am, they shrank back and fell to the ground. So all 600 of these soldiers carrying their swords and their spears and their, their torches, they come for Jesus. Jesus walks out, he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus, he says, I am, and they all fall down. And then Jesus looks over him and goes, who'd you say you're looking for again? Oh, I love it. Jesus is in absolute control. He's in absolute control the entire time. And it's, it's not just in the garden that Jesus is in control. Throughout the entirety of the crucifixion narrative, Jesus is in control. If we were to look at John 19, we'd see that when Jesus was dying, the Bible says that in John, he gave up his spirit. He didn't, it doesn't say he died. It said when everything was done, he gave up his spirit. And John wants us to know Jesus didn't die because the, the Pharisees tricked him. He, he didn't die because Pilate sentenced him to death or the Roman soldiers carried it out. He didn't die from lack of, of blood flow. He didn't die because he couldn't catch his breath. He didn't die from a myocardial infarction. Jesus died because his mission was over and he chose to die. All the way through John's crucifixion narrative, all the way from beginning to end, Jesus is in absolute control and it begs the question, why? Why does John tell us this? Why does John portray Jesus in this way? Does John want to diminish the physical suffering of Jesus? No. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had talked about the physical suffering of Jesus. John wants to give us a more complete perspective of the Christ event. So why? It's not because John wants to distance Christ from humanity. That's not what John does. It's really quite simple. John teaches us that Christ is in absolute control. From the beginning of his gospel, he teaches us that, that Jesus is the one who was the agent of God in creation. Jesus is the one who turns water into wine. Jesus is the one who turns a little boy's lunch into a feast. Jesus is the one who is the great I am. John needs us to know how remarkably high Christ was so that we could appreciate how low Christ became. John doesn't tell his story to distance Christ from us. He tells the story the way that he tells the story because he needs us to know that Jesus Christ chose the cross. He didn't get duped into it. He didn't get tricked into it. Jesus chose the cross. At every single moment, he chose the cross. And it begs the question, why? Scripture tells that all the power was given unto him. Why would power choose to become powerless? In John chapter 11, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Why does life choose to submit itself to death? Why does the one who is so high choose to become so low? There is only one answer. 
God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The first thing we have to know is that Jesus Christ didn't get tricked. He didn't get duped. He didn't fall up on the cross. He chose it. He picked it. Life became death. Power became powerless. The hope of the world gave himself over to despair. And the only reason why is because God desperately loves you and me. That's the portrait John wants to paint. Christ took these steps on purpose. All because he loved us. So, what have we learned so far? That Jesus in John is a man of great power who chooses to suffer to save you and me. It's an action of love. With that in mind, let's move on. What happens when we're confronted with a love like this? What happens when the one who is the source of all creation chooses to experience death for us? What happens when the one who is so high becomes so low? What happens when we're confronted with a love like this? My sense is that when we're confronted with a love the way that God loves us, we are compelled to make a choice. And what's interesting is, in the Gospel of John, the people had to make a choice. Jesus and Pilate, after Jesus is arrested, Jesus has a conversation with Pilate. It's an interesting conversation. And Jesus and Pilate come out into the courtyard. And Pilate says of Jesus, he says, I've found no fault in this man. He hasn't done anything wrong. So Pilate says, I'm going to let, I'm going to let him go. Or if you want, you can have this other dude named Barabbas. Just interesting. Uh, anybody know Anybody remember what Barabbas' first name was? Jesus. Matthew 27 tells us his first name was Jesus. Pilate gave us a choice between two Jesuses that day. Just a little remediation. Jesus comes from the Hebrew word Joshua or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves or Savior. Pilate gave the people a choice between two saviors. A savior named Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas means son of the father, the son of man. A Savior who's the Son of Man, or you can have a Savior who is Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of God. Pilate gave them a choice that day, and I just want to focus on the, the two options for a minute with you, because I think Barabbas gets a bad rap. What? Yeah, I do. The Bible tells us that Barabbas is an insurrectionist, and that he was guilty of murder. And before we sit in judgment over him, as the church has for generations, here's the thing I think is important to, to note. Barabbas' people were under foreign occupation. Rome, as an empire, had come in and conquered the people of Israel. And Barabbas wanted to help set his people free. So he started an insurrection that ultimately killed some folk. And the church has judged him for that. But here's the thing. I'm pretty confident that if the United States was being occupied by a foreign power, we have some insurrectionists in this room. Amen? Yeah, maybe even people who might be willing to sacrifice their own lives or perhaps even take the life of another to facilitate the freedom of our land. That's all Barabbas was trying to do. The problem with Barabbas isn't that his desire was unnoble. 
The problem with Barabbas is that his tactics failed. Barabbas' insurrection was unsuccessful. What, in fact, Barabbas learned was the same thing that Dr. King would speak 2,000 years later. Check this out. Dr. Martin Luther King said this way. He said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. He says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Barabbas tried to run out darkness with darkness. He tried to fight hate with hate. And he failed. Now, let's look at the other Savior. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that when we are facing those who would wish to oppress us, He says, if they slap you on one cheek, turn the other to them also. He said, if they force you to go one mile, go with them too. He said, if they try to take your jacket, give them your underwear. I love that. You want my jacket? Oh, yeah, here you go. Also, I got something else for you. Hang on. <laughs> I love it. Jesus, Jesus wasn't trying to give up the fight against injustice. Jesus was changing tactics. And it's worth noting that what Jesus told us to do on the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what he did in the crucifixion. Exactly. They beat him and beat him and beat him and he turned the other cheek. They forced him to walk almost exactly a mile carrying that heavy cross and he carried it as far as he possibly could. They stripped every stitch of clothing and every ounce of dignity and he never opened his mouth. The difference between the two saviors isn't that one had a noble desire and one had an ignoble desire. The difference between the two saviors is that one was successful and the other wasn't. Barabbas never conquered Rome. You know what did conquer Rome? Christianity. And to this day, of the 2 billion Christians in the world today, 1.2 billion of them find their religion housed in the middle of downtown Rome. The people in the story of John had a choice between two saviors. One who tried to overcome darkness with darkness and hate with hate, and another one. He chose a path of love and vulnerability and sacrifice. One Savior's tactics were successful. The others weren't. And I would suggest to us today that just like the people in John, we, we've got a choice between two Saviors. We can choose tactics that make us feel safe and comfortable and that ultimately fail to change the world. Or we can choose the Savior who asks us to be vulnerable. But here's the thing. Maybe we've never considered the choice that we have exactly the way that John invited us to consider the choice between the two Saviors. Let me show you one other thing about the Gospel of John. 
In John chapter 19, verses 28 and following, we read this. After this, knowing that everything was already completed, so Jesus is on the cross and all of it has been completed, in order to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now just wait a minute. Why did Jesus ask for a drink? Was he thirsty? Chuck Norris does not get thirsty, church. Right? Jesus asked for a drink to fulfill the prophecy. Okay? Jesus is in absolute control. All the way, he chose the cross because he loves us. A jar full of sour wine was nearby, so the soldiers soaked a sponge in it, placed it, to the hyssop, placed it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. Now, the rest of the Gospels tell us that Jesus got a drink while he was on the cross, but John alone tells us that he got a drink at the end of a hyssop branch. Here's a picture of a hyssop branch. Uh, now, there are giant hyssops in the United States, but not in the Middle East. The Middle Eastern hyssop branches, uh, hyssops, uh, they would remind you actually of baby's breath a little bit. They're purple instead of white, but that's kind of the consistency. You know when you send flowers, you know what I'm talking about? Send flowers the white. Guys, you need to send some more flowers, okay? <laughs> Gentlemen, you need to do that. Well, the roses come with these little white flowers in them. They're wispy. It's baby's breath. That's, they would remind you kind of, of, of what a hyssop, a Middle Eastern hyssop branch looks like. And so as the, as the reader in the Middle East is reading this text, they get to that, that word and they would say, how in the world could you put a sponge on the end of baby's breath and hold it up to somebody? Can't do it. So John lied to us? No. John wanted to make sure we saw. So John put a word there that would cause people to slow down. The word hyssop. Where have we seen this word before? On the night that God finally broke the will of Pharaoh in the Passover. The night of the death of the firstborn. God commanded all those people who would be faithful to Yahweh to slaughter a perfect lamb and to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts using a hyssop branch. John does not want us to miss it. John doesn't want us to miss it. He wants us to know that Christ is our Passover lamb. Now, it's possible that there are some folks in here who have fallen asleep during this sermon. You need to wake up because what I'm about to say is really important. Are you with me so far? You with me? Here we go. If I were to ask most Christians in the world today, what is the function of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus Christ come to the earth? Most Christians would say, Jesus came to forgive our sins. Yes? Yeah? We feel like you're trying to trick us, Pastor. I'm not. Here's my question. If the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was about forgiveness of sins, then why didn't the passion and resurrection of Christ take place during Yom Kippur, the day for the atonement of sin? Why did Jesus' death and resurrection take place over the Passover? Because the chief metaphor of the Passover, what happens in the Passover isn't forgiveness. What happens in the Passover is freedom. The people are set free. And so my fear is that that many Christians have walked through our lives thinking that Christ is ultimately about forgiving our sins, but that's not true. Does Jesus, in the the event of Jesus Christ, does, does he set us free from sin? Yes. And death and hell, that's all true, but that's not all he does. Jesus also sets us free 
from cycles in our lives that compel us to respond to anger with anger and hate with hate and darkness with darkness. Jesus came to give us a better way to live. And John doesn't want us to miss it. Jesus Christ came to do what God had done for the Israelites. Jesus came to set us free. And when we find freedom in Jesus, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about heaven and hell here. I'm talking about really following Jesus. When we really follow, when we try to be disciples of Jesus Christ, the world changes around us. It's not, it's not that we sit around angry. I, I know a lot of Christians who are just angry that the world doesn't look the way it used to look. It's not that we add to the lack of civility. Jesus came to give us a different way of being. Jesus came to help us follow him. And if we follow him and we put his truth into practice, it changes my life and it changes my family and it changes my community and my world. But here's the thing. We've got this choice between two saviors. And one of those saviors is going to make us feel strong. It's going to give us moral superiority. It's going to help us feel like we're in charge. The other Savior is going to call us to be vulnerable. To turn the cheek. To walk the extra mile. To give away our underroofs. The thing is, the Savior of comfort and strength fails. The only way we find freedom is to follow the path of vulnerability and loving sacrifice that Jesus modeled for us. And I believe that there are some people in this room today who need to experience the freedom of Christ. Jesus didn't get forced to go on the cross. He chose it. He chose the cross. Power became powerless. Life gave itself over to death for you and for me. God did it to set us free. And I believe there are some people in this room who have maybe never accepted Christ as their Savior, but I think there's a whole, maybe a whole lot of people in this room who have tried to accept Christ as their Savior in the past, but the idea of actually putting His words, His truth into practice in our lives, that's not something that we've done. And so rather than finding the freedom that God always dreamed for us, we keep finding ourselves trapped and chained. And I want you to know, church, that today can be your Independence Day. And it starts with a prayer. Jesus loves you desperately. And he came to set you free. You and me both. And if you've never taken seriously the call of Jesus Christ to truly follow him, then today can be your Independence Day. And I want to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to offer a prayer. I'm going to speak a line. I just want you to, if, if today is your Independence Day, I want you to speak it silently in your heart. Jesus Christ has come to set us free. Let us pray. Jesus, I thank you for loving me.
I confess that I've stepped off the path you desire. I have damaged my relationships with you, with others, and with myself. I want my sins to perish on the cross. I accept you into my life. And I ask that your spirit would lead me into freedom. Today and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.